Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Lauren. Thank you for the children's message. Um, I think that was just good enough, so I'm going to give you a blessing and we can go home. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, not hot, man. So, you know, um, if you allow, that, that was quite a list that she just read, right? From Romans chapter 12. I mean, what a list of exhortations. In fact, there's, there's 30 of them in 13 verses. <laughs> so if you give me five minutes for an introduction and roughly two minutes per exhortation, we have an hour and five minutes to go. So sit back and relax. Okay. And all you people at home on couch in your pajamas right now are going, yes, we picked the right day to stay home. No, I'm not going to take that long. I promise. <clears throat> but we do come to a, a part of Romans that is very different. It's a different uh, genre, different style of writing than anything that Paul has used so far. It's a style called a paranasis. It's an ancient writing uh, technique and a genre, and it, was, uh, it had some definite characteristics, and you see it in this list, right? It's, uh, for one thing, it, it seems chaotic. It's just this loose, juicy list of exhortations, one after another, machine gun style, very emphatic. And it's like, what's the organizational structure here? It's hard to discern one. In fact, there really isn't one. It's in our language or in our terminology, we would say, you know, Paul was guilty of spider webbing here, right? And this spider webbing uh, tends to be, you know, confusing. But in the ancient world, this was an intentional uh, communication technique. And it's actually very um, very effective. If you take the time to go back and read this passage through out loud, just right after another, the, the weight of what he says just builds on itself, right? And, uh, and so he takes this style that maybe to our Western mind isn't the most desirable because it's not orderly and loud, logical and categorized and everything else. And he applies it to really one of the most important and universal words in the human uh, experience, love. 
Every culture has the concept of love in it. They either have a phrase, a word, certainly the concept is there. And the reason why is because we are created in the image of God. And at least an important aspect of the image of God, God is exactly love. God is love. And so, um, you know, this makes sense that this would be such a universal experience. Yet to to borrow and quote from that techno pop song of the early 1990s, right? What is love? And according to that guy, it's baby don't hurt me. But anyway, what is love? I mean, that's an important question. And, uh, you know, we get all kinds of answers. For some, you know, it's not the best explanation. I remember several years back watching television and there was this scene where three guys, two sons and a dad were sitting on a dock and the youngest son was in the middle and his dad was to his left. And as the sun's going down and they're fishing, the younger son, Johnny, begins to talk to his dad about how much he loves him, how, how important his dad is to him and how special he is to him. And finally, at the end of it all, the dad responded to those final words of Johnny, I love you, man, with Johnny you're not getting my Bud Light, okay? And, and so in that commercial and succeeding commercials, I love you, man, which took over our nation, was actually a way to manipulate and control and get something that you wanted from somebody. You know, I mean, they even brought Charlton Heston in there. I love you, man. And, you know, I mean, they had a great time with it. But it really did kind of hit on something that for many of us, we've experienced where love and the concept of love is actually a weapon used to manipulate and control other people. Um, It's not that. Love is not control and manipulation. Neither is it just some sentimental, sappy emotion that is portrayed to us in the most recent romantic comedies. In the Bible, love is actually not simply an emotion at all, okay? In our context, we're talking about a certain kind of love, agape love. That's what's in the text. And agape love is the type of love that so far in the book of Romans has actually been reserved for God and how he relates to humanity. Only one verse in chapter eight is it it applied to humanity. But now Paul takes this love that is so characteristic of God and he applies it to us. Why does he do this? Because we are the recipients of agape love. And because we are in Christ, this agape love, we're being transformed into his image, which is agape love. And so as we mature in Christ and we grow up and we're transformed and our minds are renewed in the first two verses of chapter 12, more and more, it's to be the experience of the Christian life that we represent and we live out agape love. So what is love? What is love, right? Um, If it's not just some sentimental emotion, um, what does it look like in everyday life? This is what this passage is all about. And most importantly, why is it so important? Let's start there. Why is love such an important element of the Christian walk? And let's use this by way of a takeaway truth this morning, that genuine love is the wellspring, and my clicker is not working, so if you'll examine, if you'll take the next slide for me. Uh, Genuine love is the wellspring of life for the maturing Christian. Verse nine says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Um, Two Greek words start this little verse. 
And it's interesting because there's no verb here. There's just a noun and an adjective. The, the noun is love. It's agape. And the adjective is the word from which we would get unhypocritical, um, taking off the mask, living without pretense. And in our English language, we translate it genuine and, or sincere, right? And, and these words, those are important. These first two words, literally it just says love genuine, love unhypocritically, right? Or an unhypocritical love. That's what it literally says. And it's important that we kind of point this out because, you know, our tendency is to want to just jump right into the 30 exhortations, but these first two words are important. They, they tend to be this overarching, unifying banner over all 30 exhortations. In fact, you know, if you look at your Bible, you'll probably see at the right before verse nine, you'll see a title, right? Maybe it says something like, you know, living a Christian life or behaving like a Christian or, you know, something along those lines. There's a heading there, right? And that heading applies to the, all the next several verses through verse 21, that paragraph right? That heading applies. You know what the heading should be? The heading should just be genuine love because that's what the, the point is here. These first two words set the tone. Everything else is essentially an explanation of genuine love. So this is understandable, right? I mean, this aspect of the Christian life is referred to by every single apostle. Here uh, in 1 Corinthians, in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, virtually every epistle of Paul, he refers to it. James refers to it. John talks extensively about it. Uh, first, uh, Peter, he opens up practically in 1 Peter chapter 1. Next slide. Uh, please stay with me if you could. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 22, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your hearts. Genuine love. It's not some shallow emotional response to someone else. It is instead a passionate and deep commitment to someone else's welfare, to their good, to their well-being. And it's such a deep passionate commitment that it shapes our attitudes, our actions, and our thoughts and words towards that person. It's the motivating force in our lives. It is the wellspring of a Christian life, of a life that is lived for the glory of God and for the good of others. Genuine love, the overflowing of genuine love in our hearts is what is driving mature Christians. So rather than it being some, you know, sentimental, uh, sappy, you know, gag me with a spoon emotion that we often see on television, instead it is a response that is very much grounded in the truth and the morality of the gospel. Genuine love. Now, while it can have the romantic aspect, especially between a husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, that kind of thing, it can have that, but, but at the core of even that romantic love, of, of the love that will keep a marriage together through 50 years, right? That kind of love, genuine love, it's a mindset. It's a choice that we make. It is a, a matter of the human will, a will that is exercising itself from a heart that has been radically transformed and changed through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of genuine love 
has a certain characteristic to it. There's a moral and truth aspect to genuine love. It abhors, it rejects what is evil, what is false, what is wrong, what is untrue, and it clings. It, it holds desperately like a, a lover holds on, lovers hold on to each other, a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband. It holds desperately to that which is true and good and right. So genuine love, which is at the heart of Christian discipleship and following Christ has both this moral and truth aspect to it that in turn will shape how we express love to one another. Rather than it being some mindless emotion, it's actually grounded very much in truth and morality. Now we kind of know this in certain settings instinctively. If you are a parent or you have watched parents in action, um, I've been reminded of this this week. I've got my brother-in-law and sister-in-law in town, and they brought their three children, and and they're younger. Uh, they're you know all fifth grade and down, and so uh, watching them this week uh, has reminded me of how hard and exhausting it is to be a parent of little ones, right? I mean, I'm at the, yeah, you got like five, six of them? Yeah, you're amen in that one, of course. Uh, you know, all mine are in their 20s now, and so life is good. You know, I was telling Charles earlier, what a great Father's Day. At 8.30 this morning, my son texts me from North Carolina with questions about, you know, the, the fire that he's starting to barbecue a, a, a a pork butt. You know, I was like, what, what a great Father's Day present, man. You know, it's like asking how to grill up, smoke a butt. Good job, son. You know, that's so much easier than you guys who have young children. I mean, you think about what you go through and, and I'm watching Rob and Rachel and they just, they're just awesome parents. They really are. And they genuinely love their children, you know? And so as a result of this, um, they know that their childish way of thinking is often wrong. And I've watched this this week, you know, and, and so therefore, when the children ask if they can, you know, eat more candy or, you know, have more ice cream or, I mean, if you gave them their chance, every child is like this, right? If you gave them this freedom, they would eat nothing but potato chips and ice cream and candy and junk food, right? They, they, would, they would never go outside and exercise and get in the pool and swim and run and do things because the screen is so entertaining now, they would just become this, you know, couch potato, right? And, and they would not go to bed at a decent time at all. They would stay up all hours of the night. And for many of them, a bath would be extremely optional. And, and on the heels of that would be the same clothes worn four or five days in a row, Right? I mean, that's children. But mom and dad says, no, you're going, it's time to go to bed. No, you can't have ice cream. You're gonna have ice cream after you eat a balanced meal. Hey, let's go outside and get in the pool. Let's swim, let's exercise. Oh, it's time to go to bed, take your bath. No, yes, you have to take, go back in there. That was too quick to take a real bath. I know you didn't take a real bath, right? I mean, we know all of this. And, and why do parents do that? Because they love their children. Amen. And loving their children means telling them things that they don't want to necessarily hear and encouraging them to do things that they don't necessarily want to do. Do you see where I'm going with this? Okay. In our, in our culture today, you aren't a loving person if you disagree with someone. If you make a value judgment 
and you conclude that I love you, but what you are saying is not true. I love you, but what you want to do is not good. It is not what is best for you. And I'm saying this because your creator created you and he says, this is not the right thing to do. It will only bring harm and pain and devastation into your life. So don't do it. In our world today, to speak this kind of truth, you know, out of love to someone, it, it, it comes with a cost. And so as a result, we tend to pull back, don't we? We just kind of raise our eyebrows or we keep a blank look on our face and, and we change the subject. This has even cre crept into the church, right? We, uh, we listen and we smile and we change the subject or we ignore the 800 pound gorilla that is in the room or the reality of what is actually happening in someone's life which is destroying them, maybe their family. But we pull back. Instead of what Paul says and to the Ephesians, remember he talks about love in every chapter in Ephesians chapter four, verse 15, instead of pulling back, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who's the head of this body, the church. If we genuinely love someone, if we truly have their best interest at heart, we will speak the truth in love, yearning for what is good and right and holy for them, for their family, for their situation. And we'll do it in a loving way. Speak the truth in love means that you love them and you speak in an appropriate way and you call out in love those things which we see hindering one. This is why biblical community and being in biblical community is so important in the Bible. Because doing life with one another in this way, as you become friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and you love each other more, the, actually the easier it is to speak words that encourage. You know, some of us, we don't have any problem pointing out, hey man, what do you know? We have problems encouraging other people <laughs> and speaking that kind of truth in love. And that's why biblical community is so important, right? This kind of lo genuine love that hates what is evil, what is false, what is untrue, and clings on to what is true and righteous and good. This is what drove Jesus to act and intervene on our behalf. He abhorred our sin. He hated our sin so much that he went to the cross and he paid the penalty of our sin. And he loved us so much and he wanted God's goodness poured out into our lives so much. He wanted us to know the way and the truth and the life so much that he went to the Christ cross and he died for us. He hated our sin so much, he went to the cross and died. He loves us so much and wanted good for us so much, he went to the cross and died. Church, genuine love is at the heart of Christianity because genuine love is at the heart of the cross of Calvary. Amen, amen, amen. And amen. Point number two on that point. Not only is genuine love the wellspring of life for a maturing Christian, genuine Christian love is first expressed within the body of Christ. 
Verses 10 to 13, right? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I needed a breath there. That was a lot, right? But you've got bam, 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 bam. Feel the force of it, right? And especially those opening words, one another and brotherly affection in verse 10. These are family of God words, right? This is Paul saying that to genuinely love our fellow believers, right? This is the indispensable characteristic of a true disciple. It starts right here. And this makes sense that it would start right here because Jesus in John chapter 13 Verses 34 and 35, he writes this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's the thing, verses uh, nine to 13, they're all one continuous sentence. There's no period in there at all. And one continuous sentence, Paul starts out by saying that genuine love is to be first expressed within the family of God. And that, in verses 10 to 13, are all helping us understand what genuine love within the family of God looks like. Now, there's 10 imperatives here, and we are not going to unpack all 10 of them. In fact, for the sake of time, because we have 20 more to go, uh, I am going to give you one sentence. I've taken all these and I've written it into one sentence. You ready? Here it is. To kind of get the thought of, and what the, the gist of verses 10 to 13, here's the one sentence. Here's what it looks like. Genuine love within the family of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we love our brother and sister in Christ by zealously and energetically serving them, walking with them through the good and bad of life, praying for them, and practically opening up our lives, our homes, and our wallets for their good. Okay, one more time, just to save us some time. Here we go, one sentence. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we love our brother and sister in Christ by zealously and energetically serving them, walking with them through the good and bad of life, praying for them, and practically opening up our lives, our homes, and our wallets for their good. If we were to take all of those imperatives and we were to unpack them and dig into their meaning, this would be, I think, a fair summary of where we would arrive, okay? So genuine love is the wellspring of life for the Christian who is maturing in Christ. It is first to be expressed within the body of Christ, but thirdly, it compels us to bless and serve others, especially unbelievers who wrong us. Now, and, and there is debate. Remember, this is a different style of writing. And is, does Paul make a transition in verse 14 from believers to unbelievers? Or does he make that transition in verse, you know, 16 from believers to unbelievers? It's hard to tell. Again, the style of writing is somewhat chaotic, spider webbing, right? And you can look at aspects of verses 14, 15, 16, and you can see where, huh, this seems to apply to Christians, insiders inside the church. Huh, this is clearly, it's got to be talking about people outside the church. I mean, verse 14, blessing those who persecute you. That's not the language of brothers and sisters in Christ, right? 
Um, maybe it is. I don't know, but no, not typically. That's not. So what's he doing here? Well, we, we have a, a gradual transition taking place, right? Where the majority of this is focused on outsiders, but in, in part, some of these things that he's talking about here, they really do apply to both audiences. This is what genuine love looks like, both inside and outside the church. There's commonality here. And so we're going to take these clauses, we're going to break them up into five or six general thoughts for us this morning. Starting with verse 14, general love wishes the best for others, even an abuser. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Well, one of the, one of the characteristics of this style of writing is that you, you pull from other sources, traditional sources that are accepted by your audience as authoritative. And that's what Paul does here. He's pulling from another source that everybody would see as authoritative. And in this case, it's Jesus. It's the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in, in uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins, in, in one place he begins by saying, you know, you have heard it said that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and, you know, a life for a life. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is what Paul is getting at here. And this very first characteristic, especially towards those who are outside the family of God, who may scorn, may persecute, may mock and deride you, he says, do not curse them. Do not think evil of them. Instead, bless them. Pray for them. Secondly, he says, genuine love identifies with another and doesn't ignore the reality of their life. Genuine love identifies with the other person and does not ignore the reality of their life. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. There is no way for us to rejoice with people who are rejoicing or to grieve and weep with people who are weaving, or, or grieving and weeping if we are aloof from them if we are not engaged in their life, in their story, seeking to hear, seeking to listen, seeking to understand what it is like to be them at this moment in time with what they are experiencing. And it can be something that is wonderful and incredibly, uh, an incredible blessing. And when you're in that person's life, instead of it being a, a point of envy, it becomes a point of mutual rejoicing because you love this person, you've listened and you've walked with them. They are close to you. They are a friend. Even if they're not in the church of God or a Christian, they're your friend, they're your coworker, they're your neighbor. Listen, church, we're going to be saying more in the weeks ahead, especially as we get to certain portions of Romans that deal with unity and, and even things such as racial unity. But if there's one thing that all of us should have heard loud and clear and hopefully learned over the last several weeks, that for us to love our neighbor who looks differently than us, Regardless of the color of our skin, whether we're white and we, our neighbor is a person of color or a person of color is looking at the person who is white, the only way we can truly appreciate why they may be weeping or why they may be rejoicing is to enter into their life, to listen, to hear, to identify with that person. 
It starts right there. Hearing the pain, understanding what their reality has been, starts there. And listen, sometimes my reality or what I portray as my reality is not always actually true. That's where genuine love comes into play, where the truth of God's word is brought to my life by someone who cares for me. But you can't bring the truth of God's word until you first identify and enter into that person's life so that you can honestly rejoice or weep with that person. We're going to talk more about that in weeks ahead. But genuine love identifies with another person. And it doesn't ignore the reality of their life. Explain it away and pretend that it doesn't exist. Okay? Thirdly, genuine love seeks unity and common ground, especially with fellow believers. In verse 16, the first part, live in harmony with one another. To the Galatians, Paul will write, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Genuine love seeks unity. It seeks common ground with one another inside the church and outside the church. It's amazing what pursuing unity and common ground with other people accomplishes. But this is a key characteristic of genuine love. Fourthly, from verse 16 to second half, general, uh, genuine love is humble and it befriends all classes of people. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be better than someone else that you can't have a relationship with them, even though they have a different station in life. And then finally, genuine love does not retaliate, but it seeks to serve and make peace with an enemy. Clearly, this is a major part of what Paul is getting at. A number of verses here you know, are, are significant. And we can understand this because the Romans and the Roman church has been through and it will go through more persecution from those who would just as soon see them go away. They have real enemies. And so what does he say? Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And the point there at the end of that passage is not, uh uh-huh. All right, I'm not to get back at them, but I can heap some burning coals on their head. No, that's not it at all. The point of this is that by entering into someone's life, even an enemy, and loving them genuinely and serving them and not retaliating and taking vengeance, this is so contrary to the law of nature, to the law of our world, which is strike back, hurt them harder than they've hurt you, make them learn a lesson so that they never come near you again, right? I mean, we learned that in kindergarten if you would ever had to bump up against a bully. That's what you learned. 
He punches, you punch harder. He punches once, you punch three or four or five times until the teacher pulls you off of them and you teach him a lesson, right? And that's the law of the playground of nature. But Jesus's way says, no, you serve them. You don't retaliate against someone. You serve them, you love them. And this is so contrary, this is so counterintuitive, it forces really the person to step back and say, what is going on here? Why would they respond like that? I'm telling you, it works. And then inevitably, if that continues, the person will be ashamed of what they did. And they're convicted. That's the heaping coals of fire on their head. All right, so what? So what? We have all of this, right? And our series is So What? This is all about the practical application of the book of Romans. This is the section that we're in. So, so what? What about this message? So what? What is he getting at here? I would suggest it's summarized in verse 21. Actually, verse 9 and verse 21 are the bookends to this whole passage, and they basically say the same thing, right? That the genuine love of Christ is the antidote to all sin, to all evil in this life. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The genuine love of Christ is the antidote. Now, what do I mean by that, right? Is it, the, the, is it our genuine love of Christ that is the antidote? Or B, is it the genuine love that comes from Christ to us that is the antidote? Is it A, the genuine love of Christ, us the loving Christ, or love that comes from Christ? B, how many would say A, raise your hand? How many would say B, raise your hand? You are on to me. How many of you would say both, raise your hand? Yes, exactly, okay. I, I'm, I'm promising you, one of these weeks I'm gonna throw you a curveball and it's actually gonna be A or B, okay? Because you're on to me now, I get this. That's okay, it's all right. Uh, <laughs> hey, look. Obviously, before we can ever love someone genuinely with the love of Christ, we must love Christ. And this isn't something that we can naturally do. If you're here this morning, or maybe you're hearing me this morning, and you look at your heart and you go, you know, I mean, Jesus is a neat dude, great guy, but I can't say that I love him. If you haven't committed your life to Christ, if there is not this growing sense of love and yearning and passion for Jesus, it starts there. It starts with a personal love relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that kind of love relationship, it begins with you praying and asking God to give you that kind of heart that loves Jesus. Now, when we sing songs of worship to Jesus like we did this morning, that third, that final song, I mean, all three of them actually were good. There's just something that wells up in your heart. You may not have a great voice, but you're compelled to sing. Why? Because you love Jesus. It starts with that. And at the same time, we can't obey these commands and genuinely love others unless Christ through the Holy Spirit, matures us and grows us up and puts this love within us for other people. We need both. So really, just like the rest of the book of Romans, okay, what we've seen all through these previous chapters, everything relies upon us receiving God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Coming into the kingdom of God requires it. Living in the kingdom of God requires that kind of grace. So the genuine love of Christ, it is the antidote for all sin and evil in this life, in my personal life, in your personal life, the love of Christ is the antidote to our sinful actions. Every sinful action that we indulge in our lives is us loving ourselves, loving our agenda, loving our wisdom, loving our power, loving our desires at that moment in time more than loving Christ. So so the sincere love of Christ, the truth that's based on the truth of the gospel, this is the only effective antidote to our love of self. Left unchecked, we'll love ourselves every time, and therefore we'll sin. And so just as much as the person who's listening to me right now who does not know Christ needs to pray, and I hope you will begin praying, God, give me a heart that loved Jesus. Do you know what I find in my own life after being a Christian for now almost 50 years? More than ever, I have to pray, God, give me a heart that loves Jesus. Give me the grace I need that loves Jesus more than fill in the blank. Because without that grace of God giving me this kind of love for Jesus, I, in my flesh, will choose the blank every single time. And so the love of Christ is the antidote for my personal sin. It's what it is. When I sin, I've made it part of my confession of sin to confess what I think really is the core sin behind the sin, whatever it may be. Maybe I, I used ugly words towards my child or someone else or whatever, but I have to pray as I confess those ugly words, Lord, forgive me for loving myself. Forgive me for loving the retaliation or whatever more than you because that's what's at the core of it. So it's the antidote for my internal sinful actions. It's also the antidote to the sin and evil in the world. Listen, lots of evil and sin in our world, and right now, like never before, it seems to be loud and proud and aggressive, and so engaging with people who are proclaiming something that is so obviously contrary to God's truth and to the gospel, It is a precarious situation. Rather than being able to sit down and have a congenial conversation where you share ideas that maybe are contrary, but you leave the table still as co-workers or friends, it is now very much a confrontational us versus them mentality. You're either all for me and in agreement with me, or you're against me. And if you're against me, you're a scumbag, you're a racist, you're this, you're that, and you just fill in all the labels and blanks. You're a homophobe, you're, you're all, anything, okay? So how do you express love In a situation like that, I mean, this is a huge test. It's hard to even be heard right now. Well, may I say that at least part of the issue oftentimes is when individuals have tried to have this kind of conversations, maybe with the Christian, the Christian starts from the wrong posture, from a posture of pride. 
Um, we oftentimes, whether we realize it or not, start from a posture of pharisaical judgmentalism. This is why it's so important to enter into the life of the person, to understand and identify with them so that you can love them first and then speak to them secondly. Okay, it changes the dynamic. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she wrote a book, great book several years ago called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And the whole book is about us as Christians living in a pluralistic society that is becoming more divisive, more antagonistic. How do you have true, genuine friendships with people who reject Christ? How can you have a great relationship with your neighbor who maybe never has darkened the door of a church? How does that happen? And, and she brought something out very convicting in this book. She, she writes that how we've all heard the expression, love the sinner but hate the sin, right? We've all heard that. She said, but nowadays, that's not, you can't do that. Even better than love the sinner but hate the sin, even better is love the sinner but hate your own sin. Start there. That's where we have to start. Because when we love the sinner and hate our own sin, this drives us to the cross. This drives us to humility. We must start with our own sinfulness, our own need for God's sustaining grace, and then engage, then bring Jesus into the conversation. Think about it. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. He is genuine love. Therefore, from an honest, humble posture, we can speak and we can live out truth to those who we live with and work with and play with. This is genuine love. This is Jesus, full of grace and truth. Let's close with the passage. Let these final words take us home and resonate in our ears and our hearts this afternoon. Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. May God make the truth of these words resonate in our hearts and become the reality of our lives. Heavenly Father, we need your grace in this area God, sometimes our motives really are good, but our execution is, just leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> and so we need wisdom. We need, uh, we need discernment. God, we need your grace. Lord Jesus, would you start with us to so know your love, to live in light of who you are and the love that you have exhibited towards us and still exhibit towards us on the right hand of the Father, that our hearts overflow with that kind of genuine love. Love covers all kinds of mistakes and, and errors and poor execution when it's bathed and it's shrouded in genuine love. So, Lord Jesus, would you give us hearts that genuinely love you, that genuinely love our neighbor. Lord, I pray for the person who doesn't love you. Maybe they're here, they're looking for answers. They're wondering what to do with their life. Would they help them to see that you are the way, the truth, the life, that you 
are the embodiment of love, and you will change their life because you love sinners, of which we here at Covenant are chief. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.